Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, friends, and welcome back. Uh, please make sure you subscribe wherever you listen. You can leave us a review, kind or not. We love to read your reviews. You can feel free to join the conversation, ask us questions on Twitter by using the hashtag ZealotsPod. And you can feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. Well, friends, uh, for those of you who are new, Shadi Hamid and I are good friends. That said, perhaps we shouldn't be. I am a Christian. Shadi is a Muslim. Um, I study theology and ethics. He studies political science and international relations. God forbid. Um, and a variety of our other sort of markers uh, would indicate that we shouldn't be hanging out, and yet we are. And this space is a place where we talk about those differences and we invite others to help us think about issues of faith and public life and deep difference. And Shadi, I'll turn it over to you to introduce our guest who's going to be helping us think about this in a rather interesting space. So uh, yeah, yeah, Shadi, why don't you introduce our guest for the day? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, we have a very special guest. Not to say that our previous guests haven't been special, but you know... Um, but we have with us Elizabeth Brunig. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's also, at least you know, from my perspective, one of the most exciting and distinctive writers working in America today. And she actually is fresh off of, uh, of being a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her reporting on capital punishment in Alabama. And she's actually a two-time Pulitzer finalist. I also just want to highlight one of her pieces in the Atlantic recently, which I loved, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. It's about Lent, something that listeners will know Matt and I have talked about. We've talked about fasting, prayer, Ramadan, and so forth. And if you want an interesting perspective on, on Lent and a beautifully written one, check out that piece. Also, co-host of the podcast, The Brunigs, which you should also <laughs> check out. So with all that, uh, first of all, welcome, Liz. It's great to have you. If you'll indulge me, I'll start with a fun anecdote about how I first became acquainted with your work and writing many years ago. I don't think I ever told you this, but I was living in the Middle East from 2009 until early 2014. I came back to D.C. around then. And then American politics started getting crazy in 2015 with the emergence of Donald Trump and so forth. But I was I was following more people who wrote about domestic politics um, in an American context. And you were one of the writers who I saw on Twitter. I don't know how, but I remember that I saw your bio on Twitter and it said Christian. It was the first thing in your list of identifiers. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, huh, that's interesting. I'm not used to a Washington Post columnist or a New York Times columnist. And you were at both of those institutions previously. Those aren't known as reservoirs of religiosity or certainly not self-identifying religiosity. So I was intrigued. Oh, wow. Okay. She's, you know, she's pretty mainstream, but also quite outward and unapologetic about her Christian premises. Um, and that got me thinking more about this question of how we interact as believers, as religious folk in a quite secular space. And this has been a preoccupation of Matt, Matt and mine, that in a sense, we're swimming against a secular stream. And it's easier for maybe me as a Muslim, because I'm, you know, a person of color, and that's more acceptable but for a white Christian to be openly Christian, oh God. So I'm, maybe just to start with that, like, does that strike you as surprising that I was surprised that that was your foremost identifier? Let's see. I mean, people use the Twitter bio as a as an avenue uh, for comedy a lot of the times. Um, 
So, uh, I, I mean, I guess it's surprising. I just played mine straight. Um, I, I think it said a lot of different things over the years, but I think Christian was always one of the, the things that was in there. Mom got added in there as I had my kids. Um, I think Coke Zero Advocate was occasionally in there. I know that's my Instagram bio. Um, and um, I, I always just played it completely straight because I thought, well, these are people who are, you know, maybe getting to know me for the first time. And this is stuff that, it, you know, these are sort of keys to understanding why why I write the way that I do and why I take on the subjects that I do and why I have the interests that I do. So, um, you know, I just try to, I, I guess, make it explanatory. Um, and, and I know that it it, uh, it was also annoying. And I, I understand that as well, because, you know, people in the United States have had their run-ins with, you know, white Christianity, and not all of them have been positive, and I understand that. And, and so I, I also accept that it's going to bring a certain amount of baggage to the conversation um, that I can't really do anything about, but just, you know, try not to be another example of myself. I, I should note that you're no stranger to controversy, and I think part of it might be related to the fact that you're open about your religious background. I mean, you are you are a Catholic convert, um, but you're also, I think, unless it's changed, um, a Catholic socialist, and those are relatively rare in the wild. And so when you see one, you know, you, you make a note of it. But I've seen such vociferous attacks against you on social media, which I've always been like somewhat baffled by. But I, I do imagine it has something to do with the fact that on social issues, you do you are more, quote unquote, um, conservative, at least from their perspective on things like, um, let's say, abortion um, and that you don't fit in this preconceived box of what um a woman writing for a mainstream publication should be maybe say a little bit more about like, have you, how have you dealt with that? I, I know it, my sense has been challenging for you because I think you, you moved off of Twitter and you're not really engaging there. Um, and you also moved out of DC mm -hmm. and are probably living a more quiet, enjoyable life. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, no stranger to controversy in terms of, um, you know, people uh, getting upset on Twitter. Um, you know, on one hand, that's what Twitter is for. It's just sort of for discharging a bunch of, uh, you know, emotions. Um, I, people go on Twitter to find something to get upset about, right? So, um, you know, because I'm talking about, you know, in my writing topics that are hot, topics that are controversial, it's going to be a target. And, um, you know, I accept that I accept that when you're writing about controversial stuff, it's gonna, it's gonna hit some people the right way and some people the wrong way. Um, and I, I, I try to be cognizant of that. Yeah, if, if I could just pile on that question, um, Shadi, a little bit and, and direct it actually to both of you first to Liz, but then to, to Shadi, I've got uh, two Bernie bros here on the on the uh, podcast i'm using bro and the, the gender inclusive there um sister liz but both of you being involved in the bernie sanders you know effort and circles um being people of faith uh, a muslim within within the bernie discussion and a catholic within the bernie discussion i'm curious for both of you to reflect a little bit on what it looks like to inhabit leftish Bernie spaces as people of faith and maybe the ways in which um, that is exciting and energizing for you, but also the ways in which those spaces don't really understand who you are or maybe might speak about you in ways that they don't, they don't quite get you. Um, so I, I'd love for um, Liz for you to respond to that first and then Shadi, um, just in terms of like, how, how do these Bernie Sanders circles handle people with with deep faith that don't quite fit so yeah uh, liz take that where you will yeah i think you know the bernie movement was a was a big movement at least in the 16 primary um and so there were lots of different types of people who were swept up in it as i recall and i mean shadi can check me on this muslims were extremely for bernie um statistically um and so you know there there were 
strong representations of people for people of faith uh, who were supporting Bernie Sanders, but um, that didn't necessarily translate into a sort of a faithful um, uh, political activity. You know, the the political activity around Sanders wasn't characterized by faith, right? It was characterized along different axes. Um, and the axis that, you know, things sort of aligned upon was the, the this axis of um, uh, welfare, of this sort of Nordic-style social democratic welfare programs. And, um, you know, for me as a Catholic, there's just a lot to love about those programs and that style of politics. Um, and, you know, it's certainly true that the the reasons, my my particular reasons for being fond of or thinking those policies are morally good uh, probably differ significantly from, you know, your average Bernie bro. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we come out on the same side of things. We come out feeling that these are, you know, the appropriate policies are the right policies for nations of our level of development or comparable levels of development. Um, and they're the right policies for our people. Um, so, you know, ultimately I didn't find it, you know, too terribly alienating, um, it's certainly not as alienating to me as, as conservative politics, which are oftentimes more characterized by religion, um, but just fall out um, tremendously difficult, tremendously differently uh, on those those issues around welfare politics and, and the universal destination of goods, as we were talking about. But Liz, on that, before I share my own experience, what about the fact that in conservative circles, there is going to be more alignment on certain first principles, like how one orients oneself to the world has a lot to do with the relationship with the divine. And presumably in conservative circles, they'll at least like understand you on that deeper level, even if their policies are terrible on like economic issues. Do you feel how much does that matter or not matter? Yeah, people, people of faith, I feel, um, I, I often share, and this is true, you know, sort of regardless of the faith, um, people, you know, of deep faith who take their religion quite seriously, I often find certain commonalities with, and it has to do with this feeling of sort of um, purpose or meaning, this attachment to the divine, you know, having a cosmology, etc., how you orient yourself in the world, what you see as your purpose in life, and so on. Um, all of those things I, I often share with people of deep faith, sort of regardless of the politics. There's an interesting book, I think it's called From Politics to the Pews. It's by Michelle Margulis. Um, I think she's at Penn. And uh, if I recall correctly, it's by the University of Chicago Press. And, uh, you know, the argument is basically... We, we sort of look at things the wrong way when we presume that people sort politically based on their religious identities, because a lot of the times it looks like people sort religiously based on their political identities. Hmm. And so I and there was a great piece in The New York Times recently called Christianity's Got a Branding Problem. It was by Jessica Gross, and she interviewed a lot of people who have left Christianity uh, because they don't like the politics of other Christians and they don't like the politics of what they perceive to be the Christian church. Um, so oftentimes, you know, politics can sort of decide the religion in such a way that um, even when you're dealing with someone who has the same faith, the political ideas are so radically different or maybe so determinative that there's there's a vast gulf there. Yeah. So before I press Shadi on being a Muslim Bernie bro, I just like a, a word or two more here on this, you know, within liberal political theory for someone like Rawls, for example, you know, and, and of that side, there's a pressure for um, oftentimes for religious people to privatize their faith or spiritualize their faith um, or translate their faith into the language, the lingua franca of the, the public square. And I'm wondering about your experience in the socialist public square, where you might be asked to privatize your faith and speak publicly as a as a secular socialist, as opposed to being a Catholic socialist, that it's actually your your deep commitment to the church and to its teachings that draw you into this. So I'm, I'm wondering, it, I mean, is it just so comfortable to be outright with your faith in socialist spaces about this? Or do you encounter that? that 
pressure to to either privatize or trans over translate your your own Catholic tradition within socialist spaces. Yeah, there's there's definitely an expectation that you will sort of privatize or translate, um, you know, religious impulses. And I, I say this because there are there are um, other religious socialists or or socialists who are involved in the contemporary socialist American movement who who are people of faith, and I think they do, in a lot of cases, take um, you know a more private or a more um, you know, sort of mediated approach, even within the Democratic Socialists for America, which is sort of the big vehicle for the the Bernie movement at this point, the DSA, uh, there was an, an organization I was involved with in 2014 called the Religion and Socialism Commission, um, which is about sort of marrying these, these two, you know, distinct ideas, uh, people who have both inclinations. Um, and I, I wrote a piece for them. I mean, I, I was I was involved. Um, but I think the Religion and Socialism Commission has become, you know, a less and less prominent part of DSA, um, as DSA has become a bigger and bigger membership organization, just because, you know, the headwinds are, are a little bit against um, you know, sort of open religious expression in this movement. And it's it's in part because it's a youth movement, and it's in part because religious expression and religious belief have just fallen off among the youth. And it's in part because of this, the you know, the undercurrent of, as you say, just Rawlsian liberalism, this expectation that we're going to have a particular language for our politics, and it's going to follow, um, you know, secular lines, I think, still exists. And, um, you know, that can be, um, it can certainly make my politics sound weird, um, but but that's something that I you know I accept. I mean, they are weird in a certain way because of you know how I reason my way into what I reason my way into. But my argument is just that you know I do reason my way to the same thing that a lot of other people reason their way to. My husband is not religious and has the same political ideas I do. Yeah, Liz, I, th I don't think I'd call you weird. I think I'd call you delightfully strange. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's wonderful. So, Shadi, for you, though, uh, I mean, what are you seeing for Muslims on the left and the ways in which they are expected to show up on the left um, in, in ways that are, quote unquote, Islamic or not? What, what is acceptable in that? What have, what have you seen on the Bernie side of things? So... My situation is quite a bit different than Liz's. I don't self-identify as a socialist, and I think many of my critics would find the idea of me being a socialist or properly on the left to be somewhat absurd. Um, I, but, but the question is fascinating to me because I never really thought of myself as a Muslim working on the Bernie campaign. That wasn't my primary identity in that context because I wasn't working on religious issues. I was working on foreign policy and there were very specific reasons I wanted to support um, Bernie, you know, on those grounds that have little to do with me being an American Muslim. They did have quite a bit to do with Bernie's policies on the Middle East and having an anti-authoritarian orientation, wanting to um, cut our support to pro-American dictators and so forth. Um, so, but, but I was weird in a different way, which was people saw me on the campaign as a little bit, uh, to put it mildly, hawkish. I am, I am more hawkish. I am more comfortable with military, with American military force. So I always felt like that's what made me stand out in kind of internal conversations and not everyone was totally comfortable with that. You know, I came with a little bit of that baggage. But more broadly, as someone who was observing the Bernie campaign and knew Muslims on, on the Bernie campaign who were more working on domestic <clears throat> policy issues and Muslim outreach, um, Liz is right that there was quite a bit of Muslim support for Bernie. In part, and I should also note, not just because of policies towards authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, but also on Israel-Palestine. Bernie was really a breath of fresh air in that respect for those of us who support Palestinian rights and are critical of the Israeli occupation. I mean, Bernie really was um, 
a trendsetter in that regard, making it safe for more American Muslims and more Americans more broadly to speak openly about the reservations about longstanding U.S. policy. Um, but I think what was interesting is that Muslims were involved on the Bernie campaign not as theological Muslims. They were there as members of an important minority group that was marginalized. It was an ethnic identity or a kind of marginalized identity. It wasn't about Muslims as theologically committed. It, yeah, I mean, because we all have we all have our identities. So it's not always going to be your outward faith that is defining you as a Muslim. So I think that it's interesting that on the left, and this has been, I think, a profound problem for the left, and it's getting to be a bigger issue, which is if you treat Muslims as just another minority group among the patchwork of minority groups that support the Democratic Party, then you're not actually embracing them fully as they are. You're putting them in a box that fits into a left-leaning Democratic Party agenda that is uncomfortable with faith. So it wants to basically convert Muslims as a faith group into a minority or marginalized group. And those are different sorts of identities. They can overlap, but they're not the same. And I think that's why we have seen a growing number of Muslims becoming disillusioned with the Democratic Party and leaving it. And according to at least one of the post-election exit polls in 2020, where only about 10 to 15 percent of Muslims in 2016 supported Donald Trump, it went as high as 35 percent in 2020. And we saw similar dynamics with Hispanics um, leaving the Democratic Party. And, you know, a colleague at the at the Atlantic, Tim Alberta, wrote a very good piece about this uh, last year, which we can include in the show notes. So I think that to me is what I'm watching very closely. I'm pretty concerned about it. And as the Democratic Party embraces a sort of um, increasingly bizarre set of views on social and moral issues, including around gender identity and certain foundational issues that people on the local level take pretty seriously. And this is what I constantly hear from from Muslim Muslim friends and acquaintances in the U.S., but also increasingly in Canada, because my dad's also Canadian and, he, and he's there now. Like that public education is becoming super woke, particularly on um, gender related issues. And for some Muslims, that is the final straw. That is the deal breaker that where they say enough is enough, basically. So I think that's something that the Democratic Party is going to have to wrestle with. I don't know, Liz, if what I've just said, like resonates with you at all, if you're seeing some of that, or you feel some of that potential blowback as the Democratic Party, and leftists and socialists as well, move more to the quote-unquote cultural left on these very contentious moral questions. Yeah, I mean, I think Tim Alberta's piece is is a good read on that on that subject. And I think, you know, alarms were raised about this immediately after the last election based on, as you point out, exit polls. Um, you know, part of what Rawlsian liberalism does, as you point out, is it, it you know— it Rawlsian liberals wouldn't put it this way. They wouldn't say it's a reduction. Um, but people who are religious and who go through the process of being sort of transformed from religious people who have things that they believe and tenets that they practice and affiliations that they value uh, and are then sort of transformed into an ethnic group that has an identity marker that's sort of not transmutable, something that is just inherently other about them relative to the dominant group. Um, you know, that's a process that I think can feel very reductive. It can feel cheapening. Um, and it can feel like some important characteristics have been stripped away. Um, and, and I can understand, you know, at that stage, having some, some disillusionment with the Democrats. 
How would you like to see, I, and I, I open this to both of you, how would you like to see the left grow in terms of its <clears throat> understanding and hospitality towards the religious left? What are, what are some ways or some basic skills or uh, caricature, character traits or um, concepts that the left needs to get um, if, it's, if it's going to engage people of faith uh, in a more productive and compelling way in the coming elections. Also, like, what is the religious left? Like, can we really speak of a, relig a religious left as a kind of distinct and sizable group? Yeah, of course. The, of course, they're they're profoundly diverse. But they're, I, I guess I would say this this sense that I have a I have um, an ultimate connection to something that is larger than left politics that governs my life. Uh, beyond this particular election that, you know, this election is not the most important election in the world. You know, my connection to God is actually the most important. Mm. And how might Democrats connect with those types of people um, who have a, an allegiance that goes beyond, you know, Biden or Bernie or, or anyone else? Um, uh, yeah, Liz, what, do, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? If you could advise Bernie or Biden or anybody else on these kind of faith engagement issues, how, how might you turn or encourage them to consider other ways of doing this? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, as Shadi, as Shadi intimates, I think the religious left is, is you know, sort of a, a strange phenomenon, right? Um, it, it appears, and this is based on research Ryan Burridge has been doing, he's at the University of Central Illinois, he's a friend. Um, and he's a, he's a great, uh, statistician, if I'm saying that correctly. And, um, what he's been able to, to deduce is, is that religion is, is changing in the United States. And it's changing because in large part, people who are left wing politically or are attracted to more liberal politics are leaving religion and specifically they're leaving Christianity and and therefore the conservative politics that are you know remain in the church are sort of becoming concentrated um and the christian church in the united states is becoming more concentratedly conservative um i don't know about the trends in other religions i wouldn't be surprised if they're similar just because a large part of the drop off in attendance and affiliation has been among young people and it seems like the younger generations are are sort of dropping off in religious affiliation and attendance altogether. Um, and so, you know, that has sort of stripped down um, what what once was the religious left, if you want to look at the 1960s or 1970s, um, into, I think, a, a fairly bare bones operation that isn't analogous to, and this is a point I've always made, it's not analogous to the religious right. It's not a voting block of significant power um, that's actually able to flip elections. And it's not a, a donor base uh, of significant power that's actually able to move candidates along. So um, the religious left is not like the religious right in terms of what politicians are are going after. It's a, it's a much smaller prize and it's a it's a shrinking prize it's not going to put you over the top in terms of funding or votes um and so i think politicians are not especially incentivized um to go after the religious left the right doesn't really mind losing them and the left doesn't really see the point in pursuing them um but if if a left politician sort of wanted to pick up those voters um i think you know just a, a language that is inclusive of religion um, inclusive of belief, inclusive of people of faith. You know, that's just something the left is already in the practice of is the sort of languages of inclusivity um, and thinking expansively in terms of including people with difference. Um, I think that mold is perfectly capable of incorporating religious people into the left. On the other hand, as these changes continue to take place, in American politics, with the concentration of conservatism in American Christianity, you can understand why remaining American uh, leftists, people on the left, become increasingly suspicious of American Christians, because it is increasingly the case that they are conservatives. Um, and so I, I understand the, the difficulty in the baggage there. So I think, I think it's a major missed opportunity 
uh, for the Democratic Party. I think that at some basic level, capitalism isn't good for religion. The free market isn't great for religion. Uh, capitalism does seem to make people sad at some level or miserable. And, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about the loneliness epidemic in the U.S. and how everyone seems to want to go into therapy, but it's not actually helping as much as one might suspect because perhaps it's replacing religion in some way. Anyway, there's a lot that can be said about that, but clearly... A lot of us feel that something is wrong with the way that our society is organized. And part of that has to do with the kind of consumerist mold where, and also I think something that Liz has talked about in her own work, the paradox of choice. And people who listen to me will also know that I bring up the paradox of choice a lot, which is really about the fact that you can face decision paralysis when you have so many options and we do have so many options and that that actually empirically doesn't make us happier the whole like jars of jam if you have 27 jars of jam to choose from and you kind of have your self-reported satisfaction afterwards you're going to be less satisfied even though you had 27 choices um, it's sort of counterintuitive but also intuitive the more that you think about it so all of this is part of the marketization of our society and that can be extended to dating the paradox of choice there the marketization of dating that we have this sense that everything is available to us and it leads to a devaluing of the things that are important and meaningful to us so there could be like a very like there could be a pretty st strong religious capitalist Critique That doesn't mean becoming anti-capitalist or socialist, and I'm definitely not either of those things, but um, it does mean that you can be skeptical of the way things are and have been for quite some time. And I would also just say, it seems to me that there's like a sweet spot in American politics for folks who are economically left and socially to the right. That is actually a pretty big quadrant in American life, less so in Europe. It doesn't exist as much in other countries, but it does still seem to be there here, at least for the time being. And the question is, can more politicians um, realize that and reach out to that quadrant in ways that are compelling and persuasive? Now, to go to Liz's point, my skepticism and why this is going to be going to be hard for Democrats is because, sadly, a lot of my compatriots on the center left or left are not inclusive of different beliefs. They are inclusive of different immutable attributes that are on the surface, but they are not comfortable with ideological diversity by and large. And I don't know how you change that. Um, and there's also, I think, this idea, should we tolerate people who have intolerant views on, say, trans rights, which is obviously becoming a flashpoint within some of these woke, anti-woke debates? How do you deal with that? Because inclusivity of exclusivity is, I think, a hard pill for many on the left to swallow if they perceive these religious Americans as being exclusivist on some of these cultural issues so yeah to put a fine point on it you know with the case about you know baking a cake for a gay wedding i wonder how inclusive the democrats would have been if it was a, a small muslim woman wearing a hijab and she refused to bake that cake and how would that you know that that <laughs> inclusivity and that warmth work itself out um, so the language of inclusivity is, is yes, the Democrats know how to use that language of inclusivity. But I always wonder if, if you really got to know the Muslims that you were including, if you really listened to them for a long period of time and took their beliefs seriously, I wonder how, how long you would want them in your ranks. Um, but anyways, Liz, I would, 
wonder if you could speak to any of that or or Shaddy's ramblings there. <laughs> well, this this is already the case in the Democratic coalition, right? That there are lots of members who are who are very solidly members of the Democratic coalition who have opinions when you actually sit down and poll them that are pretty far outside the Democratic Party line at least on certain issues, especially surrounding sexuality and gender. So I'm thinking here of, um, you know, big gaps in how white liberals versus black liberals feel about gay marriage, about trans rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so these are some pretty appreciable differences. Um, same thing with Hispanics um, and whites on on these the same set of issues. Um, and, you know, it seems like this is just something that the Democrats view as a matter of time. Um, they look at it as, you know, sort of like the demographic ascendancy argument, something that they just have to wait out because the younger generations seem to be, um, you know, much closer to the Democratic Party line on all of these issues than the older generations of any identity group. So they take the approach of, you know, just waiting it out and um, eventually everyone will essentially align regardless of their particular identity markers. And, and that would certainly make things easy and straightforward. Um, for the Democrats. But um, I don't know, you know, history can always surprise you um, with with how opinions develop and how how, how people, groups of people especially progress. Uh, you know, if I could just jump in here, um, could you, Liz, could you maybe say a little bit more about how you became a Catholic socialist? Because as we've been saying, it isn't very common. It's becoming an increasingly smaller niche in American public life. But clearly there were aspects of both identities that were very compelling to you. And I, I just wonder if they're compelling to you, why can't they be compelling to more people? Um, or is there a kind of built-in limitation because of the unusualness of your own story or your own background? Like, to what extent can we replicate the Liz model, so to speak? <laughs> uh, I was born and raised Christian. I was raised Methodist. I was baptized as a baby. Um, I think I was actually baptized Presbyterian. My parents didn't really care what mainline denomination it was, as long as it was a mainline Protestant church where, you know, things were kind of quiet and chill. Um, and so, uh, you know, grew up going to a Methodist church. That was always very important to me. Um, I, I was always a religious person. Um, that was never in doubt, but I grew up in Texas, um, w disagreed, I think with the dominant, uh, politics of the time I was coming of age during the Bush years, uh, of the Iraq war. Um, didn't, didn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, didn't, didn't appreciate that very much. Um, and you know, the, the anti-war, movement at that point had a lot of socialist components in it. Um, and, you know, that's how I became acquainted with this sort of argument for, you know, essentially Nordic style social democracy in the United States. And it just seemed very straightforward and very appealing. This, you know, we're a very developed country. We're very rich. We have extraordinary inequality. It would be not too terribly difficult to remedy this with some wage compression and some redistribution. Um, redistribution, AKA distribution. Um, it's all just distribution folks. Um, so those arguments appeal to me. I was on my high school's debate team. Um, we ended up, uh, taking on a lot of these issues in domestic policy. Um, and I, I became close with my high school debate team captain, um, who was a very sort of strong willed socialist, um, and married him. That's my husband, Matt. <laughs> You know, we, we've been together since I was 16 years old. Um, so, you know, the idea, you know, our ideas sort of developed together. Um, when I went to college is when I converted to Catholicism. That's because I started studying Christianity academically under uh, Jews. I went to Brandeis um, and I asked a rabbi professor of mine once after a class in which we'd been reading Midrash, why doesn't Christianity have a textual accompaniment tradition? He said, I was under the impression you do. It's the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, and I immediately went to the library and started reading St. Augustine. Um, and it was, it was only a few years, it was months from that point to when I converted to Catholicism in the UK. So that's how you became a Catholic socialist. I'm wondering 
how you sustain it. And more actually, more personally, to to talk with you a, a little bit about you know inhabiting these two worlds or navigating these two worlds are pretty strong narratives, ways of orienting one's life. Um, that will involve experiences of tension, uh, the two communities pulling on you in different ways. Um, and I'm wondering from your own Catholic faith, what, what resources, uh, ideas, practices, what have you, what resources sustain you and what resources direct you, um, as you think about navigating those two worlds of socialism and Catholicism? I, I, I deeply, deeply sustained by the mystical elements of Catholicism and the sort of direct um, experience of God. And that can happen in, in lots of different ways. But I think, you know, just in terms of the work I do, which is oftentimes going and watching people be executed, um, I'm going to be doing that again in July. I've done that several times. Um, you go and the state kills someone right in front of you. Um, it's part of my work, um, but it's also, it's also, it's, it's part of my vocation, uh, in a religious sense. And I, I read a lot of Julian of Norwich. I read a lot of Hildegard of Bingen. I, um, I read a lot of Isaac the Syrian, um, just, you know, essentially the great mystics of mercy and compassion that I can get my hands on. Um, I, I read, you know, as, as deeply as I can. Um, and, you know, in terms of the resources that direct me, um, you know, Augustine is, is a, is a major interest of mine and just reading his letters as a bishop, a lot of what he wrote about was clemency, um, writing and requesting clemency to Roman authorities for condemned and convicted criminals. Um, this has been a, a, a beacon for me, a North star, um, you know, this idea of public mercy, of mercy as a matter of public policy, of clemency, um, that has, that has been a, a great North star of mine. I was about to ask you, what do you find in those sources that you don't find on Twitter or the New York Times or NPR? And you, it, you started to answer their forgiveness, it seems to me. But I wonder yes. if you could speak just a little bit more of, of why do you need to go to those sources in a sense of, you couldn't find that in, in secular spaces in the Northeast. Yeah. In secular spaces, you tend to find a lot of stuff about, you know, it's very therapeutic. It's very much um, about self-care and self-affirmation and cutting yourself a break. And I, I appreciate all that because I'm human. And if anyone wants to tell me, cut yourself a break, take it easy on yourself, etc., I'm more than happy to do that. Um, but that's not something Jesus ever says to people, right? Because people already do that. You don't need to be told to take it easy on yourself and give yourself grace, etc. because people already do that. They do that a lot. They do plenty of that, right? What they don't do is, you know, forgiving other people, having mercy on other people, having mercy in their interpersonal affairs, um, etc., etc. That's actually where the counseling needs to happen. And you just don't see a lot of that, but it remains an important and actually sort of integral um, matter for criminal justice reform, for uh, reintegration of people who have committed crimes in society, um, and, and just sort of generally because we all commit interpersonal offenses against one another and we need reconciliation and peace. Um, and so forgiveness, mercy, Clemency, these issues, you see a lot of them in ancient authors, not all of them Christian, right? You have on, you know, De Clementia by Seneca, um, you know, and, and so you have these, these principles that, you know, are in the treasury of sort of ancient and classical thought and, and medieval as well. Um, and I, I end up going there to, to sort of delve into these things that are hard, that are difficult, that require a lot of, of self-discipline and mastery, but nevertheless seem important to me. What would the difference be between, say, the Catholic ritual of confession and the Twitter ritual of confession, that I, I have said something offensive that has offended someone? Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference in the process between the two? Well, in the, in the, in the sacrament of reconciliation, you're actually forgiven. <laughs> They'll actually uh, absolve you of your sins and forgive you and reconcile you to the church. Um, on Twitter, if you do something wrong and you apologize, it only gets worse from there, man. 
Um, so the incentive on Twitter is never to apologize, never admit wrong, never back down, only double down, only say it harder. Um, because in the public square, you know, especially Twitter, for whatever reason, just the kind of app it is, if you apologize, people don't take that as an opportunity to sort of reflect and look at reconciliation. They take that. That's just blood in the water. That's all it is. That's also the lesson of Donald Trump. I think he's the one who popularized this and actually showed that not apologizing can be quite effective in dealing with um, criticisms and allegations. Um, and obviously, in this case, they're quite real. But in the case of Twitter, they're often not. But, you know, I, I want to just dwell on the um, the themes of mercy and compassion. And they stand out to me because I don't actually hear those two words mentioned a lot in the context of American Christianity, unfortunately. And obviously, that's a complaint a lot of people have. But that also relates a lot to your um, your work and writing on the death penalty, which is obviously influenced by your Catholic faith. And if I recall, the Catholic Church has reiterated um, that the death penalty is inadmissible. Uh, I think uh, from Pope Francis has made that a kind of key plank, I think. Um, and that seems to diverge considerably from how a lot of non-Catholic Christians and evangelicals in particular seem to approach the death penalty. And many of them, many of them are proponents of more aggressive implementation of the death penalty in a number of states across the nation. And I wonder how people who share a general Christian ethic that does or at least should prioritize mercy, compassion, redemption, how can they diverge so absolutely on something so fundamental as the dignity of human life and whether the state can take it? You know, part of the answer to that question is historic, is that this has just been something, you know, as long as there have been civilizations, there's been capital punishment. Um, this idea that, you know, people who, who break rules should be punished and that if you take that to its logical conclusion, that's going to mean death, um, is an extremely ancient and extremely ingrained, um, human practice. Uh, it predates Christianity. Obviously Christianity revolves around a wrongful execution, um, that of Jesus Christ. Um, and so this was well in practice before the advent of this faith. Um, And it's something that is just going to take a long time to talk people out of because I feel like it's intuitive, it's satisfying to people. I'm not someone who thinks if public executions came back, it would end the institution, right? I think people would watch it on their phones and love it. Um, I think people had... Really? Absolutely. I think people had a great time with public executions when they were public. The last one in the United States drew 20,000-something people. Um, and I think people would have a great time with public executions if they came back. I think there's just something in people that uh, finds, you know, public displays of violence very gratifying and very, very enjoyable. You can see this in pro sports. You can see it in, in gladiatorial games. Um, I just think that's that's one of our vices as a species. <laughs> Yes, well, I mean, this is this is originally Augustinian, right? And I, I, you know, I, I take Augustine's point here that there's something in people that you know is is not altogether um, uh, virtuous. But um, I, you know, that's a that's a real a real fear I have about the possibility of public executions. I think if anything, it might strengthen the practice. But on the other hand, we have natural natural moral intuitions that incline us towards the good. I mean, that is a big part of Catholic teaching as well. And I just wonder, I, I just can't imagine, I'm just also thinking about like my own body right now. I'm try, I'm almost like imagining what it would be like and how I would feel. And I feel there would be a kind of revulsion that I, that would be coming out inside of me in a way, because that just not, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I guess these are the two the two polar opposites of the human experience. But, you know, if, if the, um, if these moral intuitions are inscribed in our hearts by a creator, I just, I would like to have the faith that 
at least over time, more and more people would just say, we're not going to do this. We can't accept this because we feel this revulsion. And that's happened in some places. Um, I think Mexico is maybe the most populous country in the world that doesn't have the death penalty. And so, you know, neighbors to our South setting a good example for us. Um, I believe Canada doesn't have the death penalty. So neighbors to our North also setting a good example for us. Um, but, uh, you know, we in the United States, in, in at least a certain number of states, about half the states still still do. And only a small handful of those states are still actively executing. And people in those states, when you pull them, are pretty attached um, to the death penalty. And so, I mean, I understand that my co-religionists have vastly different views on this than I do. But um, by the time you actually drill down to it, you're never killing a monster. You're always just killing a person. And by the time you sit down and talk to that person and their family and so on, um, it all it all begins to seem, you know, to me pretty repulsive. But you know, that's 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 me and my perspective on on mercy and on clemency. And I I have to respect that other people don't feel that way. That's why I try to write to persuade. Yeah, Matt, can you say a little bit more? because I actually don't know how evangelicals talk about the death penalty. I don't think it's actually something that you and I have really talked about much, which is probably a blind spot on our part. But when you hear Liz talking about her own approach and her own experiences in this kind of very stark way, how, how do you, like, does that resonate with you? And what would, what would your own church say on such matters? I don't actually know what Calvinist teaching is on this. <laughs> sure. Um, I think that in general, I, I'm not aware of too many churches um, that have outright positions on um, the death penalty. I've never heard a sermon on the death penalty, um, either for or against. Um, by and large, I, I don't know too many pastors who would be, you know, outspoken on their opinion on the on the matter. Uh, historically and theologically, um, capital punishment is often connected with um just war rhetoric of the it is a it is a violent and fallen world and so um from time to time the authorities be they police officers or soldiers need to restore law justice and order violently and so the logic um of the death penalty is often connected to the logic of just war and the logic of two different kingdoms from say someone like Martin Luther that you have sort of this kingdom of grace uh, and this kingdom of law. Um, but it's, it's a long story. Um, and uh, a number of, I, I have a friend, Aaron Griffith who's written a, a lovely book on um, law order and the evangelical political imagination that, you know, I would commend to people on that, that particular topic. Um, I, I guess for myself, I haven't spent a lot of time researching it. I, I guess I would just say that I'm not in favor of the death penalty, um, but it's less out of a, a theological moral objection and more just I've been very convinced by the the more pragmatic sense of it. It doesn't work in a, in a variety of ways, and that it's, it's not a very high-functioning thing. And that's that's connected because I'm I'm a just war theorist as well, so... I believe that the state, it is imaginable for the state to morally kill through war. So it's not such a huge ethical jump for me to imagine that the state could kill for justice. Um, but that said, I'm against the death penalty more on the, on all the other reasons that are given for why the death penalty is a bad idea. Hmm, that was fascinating. Liz, you've thought so much more about that issue, so feel free to edit anything I've said there. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, I think that's right. I think if you're if you're looking at it just on pragmatic grounds, is it a deterrent? Does it reduce crime, et cetera, et cetera? It doesn't work on all of those fronts. Nobody thinks they're going to get caught. People aren't thinking about the death penalty when they're criming. Um, you know, you can look at places with the death penalty and you can see that it just hasn't had a, an appreciable impact on crime. Um, versus places that don't have the death penalty. Um, I think it's it, it, it's a form of punishment that's r dramatically removed from the crime, 
right? So people are being executed 20, 30 years after the crime. Um, I have children. They're the best thing in my life, the best thing that's ever happened to me is my kids. Um, and, you know, anyone who has children knows you don't punish them 20 to 30 years later, right? It has to be mm. pretty much instantaneous or else they don't make the connection, right? You can't be like, oh, well, you know, everything's fine and then give it a week and then come back and be like, hey, that thing you did actually extremely not cool. This is incomprehensible to them. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense logically. After 30 years, you're dealing with someone who's completely different than the person who committed the crime. Um, I mean, just in terms of age, if a 20 year old man commits a murder in 30 years, you have a 50 year old, you're dealing with someone radically different than the person who actually committed the crime. And that's, that's been, you know, what I have, uh, what I have come to see just from dealing with it up close is you have a 20 something year old man who commits a crime, but you execute a grandpa, you know, and that to me. It just doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Some people say, well, maybe we should just execute them faster. But the reason we don't execute them faster is because we have a very serious appeal system built in precisely because we execute innocent people sometimes. And so we have to give people the right legally to defend themselves. And that takes a significant amount of time just because of how the courts work. Um, and so ultimately, I, I think you add it up and you just have a very dysfunctional penalty. And so I, I end up coming down with the Catholic Church and saying, look, maybe there is an, a situation you can dream up in which the death penalty might be justified. You're on a deserted island and there's one guy who just keeps killing everyone and there's nothing you can do about this guy because you can't contain him or something. Maybe that's an incident, uh, an instance in which you might need to use capital punishment. I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm just saying here in the United States of America in the year of 2023, it no longer appears to be necessary. Last question from me. Um, it, just um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Christine Emba on. Love her. She, she's fantastic. Oh yeah, she's, she was the best. awesome. She you know, wrote this wonderful book on rethinking sex in which her, her Catholic identity pops up in a, in a sort of playful, indirect way uh, in the ways in which she talks about sex and sexual ethics in the public square and um, I think it, it shows up for you as well in a playful and indirective way in your voice and how you write and how you speak. Um, and I'm wondering if you would have any advice for um, young writers and um, speakers who are, who are people of faith, who want to persuade, who have passion for engaging the public square on how they might write and speak in such a way that they they undermine the Rawlsian pressure to privatize their faith uh, or or thin out their faith to such a degree that it doesn't have any substance anymore. And I think both you and Christine, it, it, it comes out in a rich way. But I'm wondering if you might advise, you know, young people of faith who are trying to develop a public voice, what, what sorts of things might you say to them? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no substitute for just loving people. And um, when you're writing, you're writing to people, you know, everything is a letter, essentially, and it's going out to the world. Um, and so the way you address yourself to people, whether it's compassionately, whether it's mercifully, whether it's lovingly, um, you know, that's going to reach them in the tone or or if it's, you know, on the opposite end, judgmentally and obstreperously, that's going to come across as well. Um, and there's no substitute for just actually loving people, which I think as a reporter, as a writer, is the biggest part of my job. I talk to lots of people every day. I love talking to people. I love meeting people. Um, and I, I love, you know, everybody I meet in the course of my work, I end up feeling some kind of genuine affection for, you know, because you, you need to connect with people to work with them and the connection ends up being real. Um, and I, I would just suggest that's the place to start. You know, that's where Jesus starts. He just connects with people. He goes up and starts talking to them. Um, you know, just connect with people, connect with them as an equal, connect with them in love, connect with them in compassion and mercy, show them the same things you need, um, and hope that you get them back in the world. And that, that would be my advice, I guess. 
Amen to that. No, that's a great note to end on. So I'm glad, Matt, that you asked that final question. Um, this was wonderful, Liz. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, again, highly recommend to our listeners to check out Liz's reporting um, that was Blitzer Prize nominated. I will include a link to those articles in the show notes if you want to learn more about um, her writing on executions in Alabama and elsewhere. And um, and thanks to all of you, dear listeners, for listening to Zealots at the Gate. Um, if you like what you heard, make sure to check out our other episodes and also to check out our host, Comment Magazine, at comment.org. And again, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Shadi Hamid and at Matthew Kaming. Um, as always, note the Dutch spelling. Or you can use the hashtag ZealotsPod. And you can also feel free to send us an email at zealots at comment.org. Yes, our thanks to our sponsor, Fuller Seminaries, Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life, Zealots of the Gate, is hosted by Comet Magazine. It is produced by the wonderful Ali Crummy. The slightly less wonderful Matt Crummy is, is in charge of our audience strategy and editorial direction by Miss Ann Snyder. Until next time, friends, I am Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. Bye.